morning, everyone. Good to be with you this morning uh, once again, and we are continuing uh, through our sermon series. Uh, we're very close, I think, uh, to returning to full service together, or, or at least what two square meters looks like, which is very exciting. Uh, we'll be able to invite uh, more people in, um, hopefully very soon. Uh, from what I'm hearing, we're, uh, our vaccination rates are up, and so we shouldn't be too far off, which is very, very exciting. What a day that'll be. Um, I'm hoping to count new brothers and sisters uh, among our number as the service opens up more and more. Um, as Sam mentioned, this is our third sermon from our series, Goodbye 2021. Uh, we are saying goodbye to comfortability today or uh, comfort. You know, um, We're not saying goodbye to comfort food, thankfully, You know, unless that's a really big problem for you. Hopefully it's not. Um, before I get into the uh, sermon, why don't I pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started with things. Father, it's, it's such a difficult thing, uh, what we're doing these five weeks, saying goodbye to things that have become a part of our lives. Um, they become part of our habits, they become part of the way that we live, and what greater thing is there in our lives than the goal of comfort that we seek? Uh, we seek to comfort ourselves when we're hurt. We seek to be comfortable in our lives through our studies, through our work. And for the most part, we make it the main goal of our lives. But we want to give that over to you, God, recognizing, Lord, that you haven't called us to that life, but you've called us to a greater one, one of greater purpose, and we long to know what that is, God. We want to know what your purpose is for our lives. We want to know that there is a deeper meaning, that our lives truly do hold meaning. If they hold meaning to you to the point that you would give your son for us, we want to know what that looks like in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Open up our ears that we might not be blind anymore and open up our ears that we might not be deaf anymore, but that we, we might see and hear what you're doing in our lives, that we might join in in the resurrected king, and that we might find this resurrection living inside of us as well, and that we might be able to speak of this resurrection to those around us. Be with us, Lord. Help us to love you and help us out of the overflow of this love to love one another and to love others around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the harder things to do uh, in this Christian life is, ironically, one of the things that should bring us the greatest joy. You know, it's one of the things that brings us some of the greatest joy in our lives. It's easy to sit in the enjoyment of the good gift of community that God gives us, right? It's really easy to do that. You know, when you're with your friends in Christian community, that's very, very easy. Um, or it might be easy to sit in the knowledge of the security that we have in him as well. You know, yay, we're not damned any longer. You know, like that's really nice and that's really easy to celebrate. But it's a lot harder to tell someone about this Jesus that we believe in. It's so much harder to actually offer them this invitation. You know, come and follow this Jesus that I love with me. Now, why is that? It's also such a wellspring of joy. You know, I don't know if you've actually experienced this before, 
I know that I personally have been overwhelmed by this joy, even when it's someone that I don't even know. You know, even when it's someone that I don't really know, coming to faith, people committing their lives to Christ. So my friends, I know, have testified about decades upon decades of sharing the gospel with their family members and just hitting their head against the wall and finding that there's no response. And then one day, that day comes. You know, I'm just joining in with them. I don't know their dad, but I'm just cheering alongside them saying, that's incredible. You know, tears are shed. There's real joy that nothing else can compare with. You know, recently, uh, as New Life Together, we read through this book, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. Um, It was part of the New Life Book Club, this initiative that uh, Witness Ministry put on. Um, Really great short read. If you haven't read it yet, you know, I think John said you can read it uh, four pages a day and you'll read it in a month. And if you read a little bit more, much quicker, right? In the book, this guy Tice, he he talks about the pain line, okay? This is one of the things that he talks about. And this is the threshold of hurt that we can see in front of us when we think about evangelism. When we think about evangelism, this is that, that threshold of hurt, okay? So we start thinking in our heads about all of the possible negative responses to us talking about faith, and that results in the pain line. Okay, we start imagining this imaginary line. Whether it's the threat of the pain of rejection, or maybe the anger that you might face, or the loss of relationships. You know, this is kind of the page that it comes from in, in his ebook. The point that's being made is that we as a people, we like to remain comfortable and safe. So if we've experienced or if we imagine that we're about to experience the hurt of rejection, quite naturally, we're going to try to cocoon ourselves, you know, put ourselves in our shell to shield ourselves from that pain as much as possible. I don't know if you've experienced that. You've tried to speak to someone about Jesus, they've rejected you, and then your, your physiological response is, well, I'm never doing that again because that felt really terrible. We hate anything that makes things tough for us, that makes us uncomfortable. So hence, if we're to evangelize, there's this pain line that needs to be crossed. And that's what Tice is talking to us about. The Christian life is not comfortable. So neither is evangelism comfortable. I hate to break that to you. This is, you know, a hard selling point. Welcome to an uncomfortable life, okay? Yet it is worthwhile and so necessary. It's so worthwhile. You'll find that most things in life that are worthwhile are not really that comfortable or not really that nice at first. It's quite challenging. But I understand. We don't like the feeling of necessity. We don't like the feeling like we're required to do things. We want to be free to do whatever we want. We want things to be just chilled out, you know, because we want to live relaxed lives of comfort and amusement. And we'll quarantine off any part of our lives that we perceive to be a little bit more difficult, to be challenging, you know, those dreaded areas of work or study or difficult habits like exercise or learning. You know, and that's why we try to push those things off to different days. And if we miss a day, ah, that's fine. Even if you're the rare one, even if you're lucky enough to count yourselves among those that like challenge, those that like to grow, 
sometimes it feels like the deck's stacked against you, right, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Christian life. Because the culture of today feels pretty hostile, doesn't it, when it comes to the Christian life. If you spend any time, I don't recommend this, but if you spend any time in YouTube comments or in any social media comments, you kind of start feeling like, man, I don't really want to ever talk to anyone about Christianity. Everyone hates us, you know, for whatever reason. It's not true, but it does feel pretty hostile. No one wants to be embarrassed, okay? That's the point. No one wants to be embarrassed. We don't want to face ridicule or anger, even from strangers on the internet, let alone people that we really treasure in this life. You know, those people that we really want to share the gospel with, we don't want them to react in a negative way. Not only this, but sometimes we just feel plain unprepared to answer the sort of questions that we imagine might come our way. Like, hey, you should believe in Jesus. And they say, why? And we're like, ooh. And then they ask us some more. Like, we can tell people what we know about what we believe, but it feels like it falls short because we don't actually know that much about what we believe sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't know enough, it feels like, to actually share effectively the gospel. Now, today, I'd like to present to you Three different stories of evangelism, okay? All true stories. Uh, Keep the questions that you have about evangelism in your minds, your objections to why you should do it in your mind, all of those things as you follow along, okay? Just continue to think about those things as I relay these stories to you, okay? So the first case study, okay? One time, I noticed that a friend of mine had a Bible verse in his online profile, okay? I don't know if you guys... (laughs) Well, some of you guys are old enough to remember, you know, MSN, you know, I don't know if uh, many of you guys are from that age. Some of you guys are like, that's like, you know, carrier pigeon for me, like it's too far in the past, right? But I messaged them, you know, seeing this Bible verse saying, I didn't know you were a Christian. I had no idea. And I was naturally really excited. It's like discovering that you have this long lost brother that you never knew. And you just want to catch up with him and talk to him like, Dude, like, let me tell you about, you know, like, we started going to church together for a while, okay? We started going together, and one day, he told me the story of how he actually came to know the Lord. Blew my mind, okay? So, I always wondered this as well, because he's a quiet, thoughtful, intelligent guy. So, I wondered if maybe someone had shared with him some really deep theological truths to, you know, convert him, right? I wondered if maybe someone had taken him through this in-depth Bible study, or maybe they just debated with him for hours upon hours. He tells me the story. He told me, so one day, he's at home on his computer, just doing what he does, and his younger sister is walking by the room, and then she pauses and looks at him in his doorway, and You know, it's uncomfortable if you're just doing something and someone's staring at you for a while, right? So he looks back at her after a little while, and she says to him, you're going to hell, you know. And so I'm just like sitting there on the edge of my seat waiting for the story to continue. But that was it. That was the end of the story. He was taken aback, obviously. He was like, what did you say? Like, what do you mean? Like, and after his initial shock at what his little sister had just said to him, 
He's just on the computer in his room. Like, you don't expect to be told you're going to hell, right? He started exploring and then committed to Christ. It blew my mind. You know, what would be going through the sister's mind? Like, what kind of fear and anxiety about what she's about to say to her brother? Right? And then this is, like, the best that she comes up with, right? What if he just utterly rejected her? Which you would expect at such a line, right? What if he had questions about this hell and this God that saves him from it that she couldn't answer? You know, when we begin to worry about such things, maybe it's best to call to mind scripture. I got a couple of scriptures here. Luke 12, 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. 1 Corinthians 2. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. It reassures us, these verses, in the instances when we're sharing about our faith, God is with us. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to speak, even at the point when we're at the risk of martyrdom, which is what's happening in that Luke passage, right? And the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom in explaining spiritual things to spiritual people, it tells us. Second case study, okay? So I've got another friend, one of my closest friends throughout high school. We used to hang out pretty much daily. You know, we'd go to each other's houses after school, under the guise of studying, but we'd actually just be playing or doing whatever. You know, we had a lot of common interests as well. We'd talk about all sorts of things, music and, and, and soccer. And, you know, we're rival fans as well, so we'd always egg each other on. He's probably much happier than I am these days. Um, we talked about a lot of things. We kept up our friendship throughout uni and work life. And this friend of mine saw me through some of my lowest periods of life. And then it was during this time in particular that I came to know the Lord. So of course, one day, I wanted to share this with him. The most important thing that's ever happened in my life, I wanted to share with one of my closest friends. And it took me a while because I just didn't know what to say and I also didn't want to go back to old habits with him. You know, I wanted to make sure that I presented the gospel well. But I had this strange sense of urgency in my heart as well. Like, I knew I had to tell him about all this, and I wanted to do it soon. Now, a few months pass, and finally I go to his house, and I'm asking a few brothers that I know to pray for me as I'm about to go up. I shared with him hours upon hours. You know, we're in the middle of playing FIFA or something, and I just, you know, we wanted to talk. I'm pouring out my heart to him, where I had been, where I was at now, and he listens just intently for hours, just asking questions. And then came this soft rejection over the course of the next few months, fewer and fewer phone calls, missed messages until eventually we lose touch with one another. Now, at first inspection, this story is not as good as the first one because it might do very little to get rid of your anxiety about evangelism. Like, I really don't want to do that now, you know? And then you might do what I did as well, you know, stay up all night, turning this over in your head again and again, trying to figure out why did it end up this way? What happened? Like, was there something wrong with my approach? Did I not answer all the questions that he had to his satisfaction? The worst 
idea was the Holy Spirit not with me. And you can keep yourself awake at night with the endless questions, the analysis, both prior to and post evangelism. But nowhere in scripture is it evident that this is the right thing to do, that it's good to agonize and obsess in such a manner. The same Bible verses that are up there right now that assure us of the Holy Spirit's presence in sharing the gospel are the same verses that reassure us even in the face of perceived failure. And besides this, God has promised us, I will never leave you or abandon you. Now, the third case of evangelism comes from our focus passage today. Luke 24, 1 to 12. Keep your Bibles open there. Sam took us through it. Here we find Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women, it tells us. And they've just watched previous chapter as Jesus died on the cross and was entombed here. Okay, a few days before the events of our passage today. And this site of Jesus' burial becomes this principal setting, okay, that we're looking at, right? The centerpiece of this passage, because all the action happens around this tomb. We see the woman come to the tomb, enter in, and then come back from the tomb, and then later we'll see Peter do the same. Read with me here. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. So try to imagine with me their confusion as the women approach this tomb and find this giant stone rolled away. This is like a recreation of this, right? Giant disc of a a stone rolled away. In Matthew's gospel account, we see that there's a guard of, of soldiers that were stationed at this tomb. Pilate had sent them there just in case anyone had come to try to steal the body of Jesus. So you would assume that this stone is pretty heavy if it takes a whole bunch of guards to actually put it in place And then the guards are actually stationed there anyway. And yet they find guards are nowhere to be found. Tomb is open. And so naturally, they're perplexed. They head into the tomb and find it empty. There's no body there. And scripture tells us they're perplexed. They can't believe their own eyes because they had just witnessed as Jesus' body was laid to rest here. They saw where it was days before, and they'd return with spices to dress the body, to anoint the body, and nothing else was expected by them except to do such a thing. And then suddenly we read that these two men in dazzling clothes appear. Angels, it tells us in a later verse. And the women are terrified and bow down to the ground. Okay? And this is a very natural response, it seems. Because if you look through the history of Scripture, anytime angels show up, this seems to happen. Each time people who come face to face with angels bow down in terror and reverential awe, sometimes even saying, I'm about to die. And so it's not just, you know, amazing clothes or whatever that's making them bow down. There's something terrifying, okay? And this is the mindset of the women who are going to be evangelizing soon. This is the state of their minds. First perplexed, then terrified, 
not exactly the state that I would want to be in before doing anything, let alone evangelizing. It reads a little bit later, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Ask the men. Verse 6, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. So the angels speak to the women, and maybe this is my, you know, my game-obsessed mind speaking, but it sounds like they're speaking to the women as though they're on a mission or a quest or something. Okay, observe from the passage that the women are there for the express purpose of anointing Jesus' body, but the angels seem to think differently. Like, this is not the angels' concern. They seem to believe that the women are here on a different sort of mission. And so they're telling them, hey, the body's not here. How often is it in life that we do one thing when we really should be focused on another. Like we make our goal something and then we focus on a lesser goal, okay? For many workers with families, for example, okay? Some of you guys aren't workers yet, but you know, like you're heading that way. The mission in life becomes provide for my family. And out of this wonderful intention of loving their families, we work and we work and we work longer hours and even far from home, maybe even overseas, maybe you guys have experienced this, but the real mission of love, of being there in partnership with our spouses, of being present and discipling our children, falls under this fog as we become absent, pouring money into our families rather than time. And so the greater goal becomes subservient to the lesser goal, and we lose sight. In the Christian life, okay, we've seen how we compartmentalize, and we become consumers in recent weeks. But not only this, we make our faith about doing a bunch of things, about acting a certain way, about keeping up certain appearances so that we appear to be good Christians. And we forget to love Jesus in the midst of it all. So the women of this passage, they've come with wonderful intentions. It's a great thing what they thought they were about to do but they've lost sight of some very important things along the way. In trusting in what they've seen, they've forgotten or perhaps they've failed to grasp Jesus' message about his resurrection. And this means that they've seen and believed in the power of death and not the power of God. This is where they're headed. And so the angels remind them, okay, Luke 18, 31 to 34, That'll be on screen there. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them. and They did not grasp what was said. And this is the third time that Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, this is what's about to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die, but I'll be back. And they're all like, what, what's he saying? What does that mean? Is there a symbolic meaning? No, there's not. He's coming back. This tomb ought to be a symbolic place for them if they had truly understood where Jesus' disciples should come expecting it to be empty. 
expecting that the risen Jesus has triumphed over death. It's been exactly three days. Now, it's not unusual for this type of uh, forgetfulness to happen. It's not. In no way do I criticize you if this is the case for you. Because in this life, we will have troubles that will cause us to stumble and fall. It'll cause us to forget. But it's what takes place afterwards that's crucial. And that's what's happening here with this angel. Here's the medicine. Remembrance. The angels remind the women of Jesus' teaching in Galilee, calling to mind what Jesus had predicted and connecting it to the site of the empty tomb before them. You see that on screen there. Remember how he spoke, and they remembered his words. The Son of God, in his life, death, and resurrection, he embodies the same characteristics we'll find in our lives as followers of Christ. These are the the motifs of suffering and of redemption, of vindication. After suffering comes redemption. The Christian life is not comfortable. Evangelism is not comfortable. But from that suffering comes redemption. And out of the seemingly inevitable fear, rejection, defeat, comes the resurrection and the life. And there's a breakthrough on the part of the women in this passage. So out of their confusion, out of their terror, there's reception. They receive this reminder of Jesus' teaching. They they hear this reminder and they actually receive it. And in turn, as they receive this reminder with gladness, the good news of resurrection, what do they do? Here is confirmation that they're his disciples. They remember and receive his message, but not only this, they in their joy go on to bear witness to others about what they had experienced and what they now know. This is confirmation of the fact that they're disciples. Luke 24, 9 to 11, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them and they did not believe the women. And their testimony is not well received. Their words seem like nonsense to the apostles, and they didn't believe the women. Was there something wrong with their approach? Did they not answer all the questions that the apostles had? Or was the Holy Spirit just not with them? Now, the deck was stacked against them from the beginning, okay, against these women. It's crucial to the understanding of what's happening in this passage that you take note of who the passage focuses on, okay? So Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and it tells us the other women with them. If the response of the men in this passage seems decidedly sexist, it is. But one caveat This world and this culture is biased against women as witnesses. It's already biased against women being witnesses. Think of this however you like, okay? Whether you just want a blanket statement and say that's just wrong, or whether you want to approach it with a bit of nuance and say, hey, it's a different time and culture. I don't fully understand it. We're not living it. Whatever the case, imagine yourself in the place of these women. 
the deck is, tr- is truly stacked against you, culturally speaking, not only as Christians, but as members of your gender. Growing up in this kind of world, you would know what to expect from the people around you when you speak. And yet, they still crossed the pain line. Why? Maybe, in recalling Jesus' teaching, they also remember how he always treated them with the dignity of a common humanity. Perhaps they remembered the way that he made them feel as though they had a voice with him, that they could actually speak with him, as though he took them seriously. And knowing that he's risen, perhaps there's this renewed hope and the courage to cross this threshold of discomfort in order to testify to what they know. Or maybe, being disciples, they remember this is what they're called to do, regardless. Are we willing to let go of our comfort in order to truly love someone by sharing the gospel with them? All three of these case studies of evangelism, they share this underlying bedrock of the sovereignty of God. Whether it's the friend who was evangelized by a sister with one very off-putting phrase, or the friend who listened to hours of testimony and showed a deep interest only to walk away in the end, or the women of this passage who faithfully recounted what they've seen and heard to a very lukewarm response. Foundationally, we can be certain of one thing, God's activity and his presence in the midst of it all, in all three of these cases. And this points to the fact that in our evangelism, the Holy Spirit is the effectual one. He's what makes it work, so to speak, not us. In our own individual stories, we didn't start following Christ out of the vacuum of our darkened hearts because someone has convinced us or because we're good people or anything like that. No, it was because God chose us. Speaking his light where there was only darkness before so that we might open up our eyes and see the truth. And because he opened our eyes to our sin and our need and the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son, we now have life with him. So he's initiated, God has initiated, and our spiritual lives find its beginning in the Holy Spirit regenerating us, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel of grace. That's the beginning point of our spiritual lives. If this was the case for us, for us Christians, and certainly the same can be said of those that we evangelize to. It's the Holy Spirit's power, it's his prerogative that brings people to come to know him. Our thing is to cross that pain line, to say goodbye to comfortability and to share the gospel of grace with those around us. Even those around us, those around us, the people that we know, we're placed into relationship with these people for the divine purpose by our, our sovereign God. The families that we're born into, the friends that we have, the cafes that we frequent, it's all by his grace that he's called for us to love them, to extend his grace to them. He loves us so much that he loves others through us. 
he allows us to join in this journey. And so we preach Christ, telling people about the one who saved us, and the rest is up to God. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will open up their eyes that they might see. Or perhaps it's going to be a longer journey of endurance, of patience for us. And there's the third thing. Maybe, like my friend that I lost contact with, there's more that we just don't understand yet. This side of the New Jerusalem, we just don't understand it. Whatever the case, whatever the result, this scripture gives me great hope in the face of evangelism. Okay, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, it's on screen there. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I know that even in the face of a very faithless evangelism that I might muster up on behalf of my friends, that he is faithful. For the women of our passage today, although the apostles didn't believe them, Peter responds to their witness by running straight to the tomb to see for himself. He wants to investigate, what are they talking about? I've never heard of such a thing. Whatever the immediate response to our faithful evangelism, there may be some other results that we weren't expecting by the power of the Holy Spirit. I encourage you, go and do it. Go and evangelize. Why don't you pray with me? Father, so often we treasure this life of comfort and in treasuring it, in seeking it, in seeking to place a shell around ourselves, we make it number one over you. We want to say goodbye to this, God, but we need your help. It's not easy to say hello to being uncomfortable. It's not easy to say goodbye to comfortability. So we need your help. Convict our hearts, God. Without you, we have nothing. Without you, we have no hope. But we know, Lord, that even in the face of our faithlessness, that you are faithful. We know, Lord, that you cannot deny yourself. And so we bring our loved ones before you, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, our baristas, our restauranteurs, whoever it might be. We place them before you, before your seat of mercy, and we ask, Lord, that you would extend your grace to them. We are often too weak in our wills, in our hearts, to present the gospel to them. But we know, Lord, that you're able. We know, Lord, that your resurrection power resides inside of us. You've called the dead in us to life. And if you can do that, you can do the same in them. You can do the same to our will. So we pray, Lord, that you would spur us on 
that you give us a renewed energy to actually evangelize and to preach your good news, recognizing that it is good news that saved us. So we pray that you would speak through us. We pray that you would help us to trust in you and your sovereignty. And we pray, knowing, Lord, that your plan is great. We ask for your mercies upon your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.